You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford, and today we have an interview with Taylor Anderson, author of the Destroyer Men Trilogy. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Today, I'm happy to have the chance to speak with Taylor Anderson, author of the recently published Destroyer Men trilogy published by Rock. The first book in Taylor's series, Destroyer Men Into the Storm, was recently published in paperback, and the second and third books in the trilogy, Destroyer Men Crusade and Destroyer Men Maelstrom, are available in hardback. For those not familiar with the new Destroyer Men trilogy, I'll give you a brief outline of the concept. Following a naval battle in the Pacific in World War II, The USS Walker, a destroyer originally built for the First World War, is magically transported to an alternate Earth along with another destroyer, the Mahan. The Destroyer Men trilogy follows the crew of the USS Walker and Mahan as they discover non-human races battling for supremacy in this new world. Taylor, welcome to the Reading and Writing Podcast. Uh, To start us out, um, let's kind of go backwards for a moment. And I was wondering if you could kind of tell us how you originally got interested in in writing fiction. As far as how I got into writing fiction, um, I've been writing and and, uh, uh, doing things all my life that required, oh, that I... Uh, shoot, I'm having a hard time with this. <laughs> uh, let's see. That's a that's a difficult question. It it really is. I've always been fascinated by by all genres of fiction, uh, from Arthur Conan Doyle to to David Weber uh, to uh, you know other other things that aren't necessarily science fiction or fantasy. And I'm also very very interested in in history. Uh, I didn't really realize that I was 
I was uh, crossing genres that much, I thought I was kind of following in the footsteps of, of authors like like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and, and basically intended to write uh, adventure stories. And as as it progressed, I began to realize more and more that there was there was more to it than that, and it was it the stories did involve a number of different genres. And it's, it's it's really hard to describe. I don't know what what got got it started, if, unless it was just a a desire to create a world that that didn't exist. Sure. In which I could uh, uh, put characters that could have existed and see how they would react. Sure, sure. And and I'm I'm just curious. I, I know that you know um, some authors do have their their you know, first novels or first short stories published, were there, were there, um, you know, were there other uh, novels or short stories that you had possibly worked on in the past before the Destroyer Men trilogy, or was this kind of your, your introduction? Well, I, I had written some, uh, well, a few brief short stories back in, in college and, and uh, things like that. Nothing that I ever submitted to, you know, for publication. On, on, on a national level, um, I had been writing some uh, historical fiction that I enjoyed quite a bit, but it's 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 very strange. A lot of a lot of my friends that 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 have known me for many years and know my my historical interests say, uh, uh, "What what what's the deal with this?" <laughs> <laughs> You know, good grief! You know, this is this is totally off the wall and, and unexpected from you. And I really don't know what happened. It was just kind of one of those things that that, that the storyline got in my head, and I had to write it. Hmm. Uh, the Destroyman series was the, the the first thing I ever submitted wow. from uh, as far as a novel is concerned. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really been gratifying and, 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 and surprising to me, I, I suppose, how well it's been received. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm actually, my, my friends might, might joke that, I'm, <laughs> that uh, I'm incapable of humility, but I, I, <laughs> I have been humbled <laughs> right, by, right. The, uh, by the reception that it's, that it's had. And, partic- and I, I think a lot of this comes from my historical background. But I get so much uh, feedback from veterans, particularly naval veterans, that uh, uh, talk about how I got the characterizations spot on and the and the uh, descriptions of the of, of the old time steamships and the, the 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 types of boilers, the 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 fire control, everything like that, and they they're just they're just very complimentary, and that. That means a great deal to me, both as a historian and as a as a as a novelist. That that kind of leads me into to one of the questions that I had uh, written down to to ask you, and that that is, um, uh, you know, what kind of research did you do uh, for the novels? Because as I mentioned before, um, uh, the USS Walker is a is a World World War One era destroyer. And I was just wondering, yeah. were, were you ever in the Navy? What kind of back, what kind of historical research did you do? No, I was I was never in the Navy. 
I, uh, uh, I've always loved the sea. I've always loved sailing. Um, and that's another example of, you know, why did I choose this? And basically, I think it all kind of boils down to it, the, 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 the ordeal that the Asiatic fleet endured after uh, uh, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor was almost an Alamo-like ordeal. They, they were they were totally on their own. They were outnumbered, uh, incredibly out outgunned. The the Imperial Japanese Navy at that time was the most modern and powerful in the world, and the idea of these these relics, li- literally, standing in their way. Was it? I, it may have appealed to my my. You know, <laughs> uh, I don't know my my sense of uh, of you know the David and Goliath type of encounter. You know the uh, the the stand at Thermopylae, the the Alamo, the uh, uh, Rourke's Drift. You know so many of those historical events. And uh, the more I read about it, the more the uh, the events that took place seemed almost like the storyline for a novel. And I think that's what attracted it to me, uh, me to it. That and, and the technology that was involved as well. The old four-stacker destroyers were, were very primitive ships. They, uh, one of the first things that a lot of people notice about them is the anchors that they used hmm. are identical to the anchors that were used throughout the 19th century on wooden sailing ships, hmm. and the uh, just just the primitive conditions under which the the sailors had to live, the uh, the fact that they were they were so uh, just just so neglected, so uh, so uh, antiquated right. by the time World War II began. They don't look anything like destroyers, as hmm. you know, as people perceive them and as people picture them in their mind. I think probably what jumps into people's mind the most when a destroyer is something along the lines of a Fletcher class or or one of the the big all gun destroyers of, of late World War II. You know, fast and sleek and and uh, bristling with guns. But the uh, the old four stackers were were not like that. They their primary armament was uh, torpedoes, and of course, as, as a lot of people are aware, the the American torpedoes at the outbreak of World War II were were defective in many ways, and so a lot of the efforts that they they went to and in get in a lot of the actions that they engaged in were were futile because the weapons that they had were insufficient, and 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 of course in the in uh, in terms of the torpedoes, they were they were defective as well, and so a lot of people risked their lives or lost their lives, you know, in vain. Hmm. <clears throat> I, I I wonder you you mentioned earlier about your your historical um, your historical uh, background, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. I, I know from reading your your biography that you have worked as a historical consultant um, for movies. And just wondered if you could talk about, you know, what what your background is in terms of uh, in terms of history. Well, 
I came to history kind of backwards in a way. Uh, I've always been fascinated with the with of history, the uh, the flintlock rifles, the 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 artillery, you know, 18th, 19th century artillery, things of that nature, and. The more I got interested in them, the more I got interested in the history surrounding their use. And so when I went to college, I really, <laughs> I'd, I'd been uh, uh, working for many years and suddenly realized I'd been going to a community college and suddenly realized I was virtually virtually had a degree. I just needed to, to pick a major and I thought, I'll do history. <laughs> And, of course, you can't do a heck of a lot with a history degree, and so I'd, well, I'll, I'll get a master's degree. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so there I was with a master's degree and uh, still basically building building custom flintlocks and things for people. And, and uh, then I decided to teach. Well, I taught at Tarleton State University for a number of years, and then... Uh, I opened a uh, a shop where I, I sold these these custom flintlock rifles, wheel locks, a uh, variety of different things, everything from uh, from box lock flintlock pistols to, to three thousand pound artillery pieces. And I still would teach occasional if I had the time, and I still do. I, I really enjoy teaching. Uh, Unfortunately, the uh, the public school system doesn't seem to be. <laughs> I have noticed a decline in the in in the product. To be honest with you, and it's a it's a it's a shame. But there's there's there are a few things that are that are more gratifying than than seeing the light bulb come on over a kid's head. Right. When you're when you're telling a you know when you're teaching history or, or anything, I imagine. And so because of that, and because of that that uh, occasional. <laughs> gratification I, I i get when when you realize that that some some student is is getting it uh i still i still love to teach when i have have an opportunity um as far as the uh, other historical pursuits are concerned that was almost accidental in how it began well i i guess not accidental but uh uh well, it wasn't deliberate, I guess. The uh, you know, I was building the small arms and things of that nature, and and had a number of clients all over the country, and and quite a few in other countries as well. Um, that you know, museums, sportsmen, uh, people that used them for competitive shooting, and I did. You know, everybody loves cannons, I guess, and I decided I had to have a cannon, and I I built. One using the uh, original uh, Mordecai specifications, 1841. Started out with a couple of mountain howitzers and just went up from there. Wound up with a with a six pound field piece. And I guess because not that many people have cannons, uh, word spread, and I began to be contacted by uh, uh, movie companies to uh, bring them out. And, uh, and use them in the movies. I, I always insisted that that I and and some of the people that I brought with me uh, crew the guns because there are certain safety procedures that you know are, are, are necessary when you have uh, accidents with artillery pieces. 
it's not like a you know a, a superficial burn or something like that that you get from a from a small arm when it goes off too close to your skin. It's you know, you're you can lose body parts, and it's so they're, they're, they can be extremely dangerous to the to the users if they're not uh, acquainted with with the, the proper safety procedures. And so over time, uh, we developed a, a, a reputation for safety, and and the, and since we didn't belong to any of the unions and really didn't care what you know, very much what what anybody thought. When we were on the the movie sets, uh, we if somebody was trying to do something screwy with a cannon that would get somebody hurt, we didn't care who he yelled at. And yeah. oddly enough, even if it was a director, eventually they realized that hey, you know, we know we know what we're doing. They don't know what they're doing, and we're going to be safe about it. And uh, one of our our guys I've known for close to 30 years it's always been involved in virtually every movie I've, I've been involved with in one fashion or other uh told one of the directors just hey we'll we'll make it blow soap bubbles if you want us to <laughs> but <laughs> we're gonna do it our way <laughs> right <laughs> and, 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 what, and what were some of the movies what were the names of some of the movies that you worked with oh let's see uh, actual cannons on on film in quite a few, and I've been uh, I've, I've, I've uh, uh, consulted on on quite a few that that uh, I wasn't actually on, and sometimes I've actually been on the film myself. But let's see, the most recent was the uh, uh, as far as movies are concerned was the 2003 or 2004 uh, Alamo. Oh, okay, and I was. I was uh, in charge of all the artillery on that on that film. Uh, there were a, there were a few little historical inconsistencies that they uh, that they did that I wasn't too happy about, and so I, I they they asked me what I wanted to be credited with, and I said artillery trainer instead of advisor because I didn't want anybody to think that that one particular scene was my idea. <laughs> <laughs> but I was very proud of the crews I trained. And uh, and I I had some some good help with that from a number of people and because we we trained probably more artillerymen for that movie than than have been trained for muzzleloading artillery since the Army of the Potomac and it was it was very impressive uh, we used the Mexican drill we used Scott's drill we used uh, a, a variety of of uh, different drills for the for the defenders inside the Alamo, so that they could uh, use use short crews. Because if they'd crewed every gun that was in the Alamo, they they wouldn't have had anybody firing rifles if they'd crewed them with the proper number of people. And we used uh, we did all the sound for the film. We uh, went out to a uh, a gravel pit basically and fired uh, live rounds. For, for sound and they we, we destroyed a few microphones and uh, but the, the sound people thought that was a hoot and uh, some of the some of the sounds that we were they'll probably be using in movies for 50 years because they were so great uh, we we loaded cut nails for example in in lead sabos so they wouldn't damage the barrels of the cannons and fired those so you could get that that 
that visceral whistling shrieking sound that that shows up in the movie when they're just throwing everything they can down the barrels of the guns and uh it was it was great stuff and we did we did all the the small arms sound as well um i it's it's kind of funny to to watch uh, uh billy bob firing his rifle and know which rifle it was that made the sound <laughs> Of course, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't his. And, uh, but things like that, it, it's, it's, it's fun, uh, particularly in retrospect, when you, when you begin to forget all the misery of being on set for seven and a half months. But, uh, and it usually takes me a few years before I can watch a movie that I've been involved in and really enjoy it. Uh, one that we did a number of years ago was uh, called Rough Riders. And we did we did the artillery portions for that, and uh, some of our other guys were involved in training the uh, the infantry, the 71st New York. And you know, at the time when it first came out, I was oh man, you know, it's you know this that and the other thing. You're always picking out detail that they had they had gotten right. Uh, for example, it's little stuff like the the. Oh, the 71st New York in reality had sky blue piping on their uniforms. Well, in, in the movie, they don't. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that's that's a tiny, tiny thing. And on the whole, the movie, you know, after a few years, I watched it again. I said, man, that's a good movie, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you, you tend to forget all the little things that, that nag at you when you're arguing with producers and stuff. That, no, this isn't right, this isn't right. And uh, and over time, it it... it, it you, you, you forget a lot of that stuff. Uh, we did all the artillery scenes for uh, American Outlaws, which was was very strange for us because at the time we didn't we didn't realize that it was it was supposed to be you know kind of a oh a humorous cartoonish version of of the the Jesse James tale. Right. We thought they were trying to do a, a, a serious historical movie, and and so we we got into all kinds of arguments with people, you know, about, about well that couldn't possibly do that, or 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 if you really want us to to do something, you know, that looks real, we can do this. You know, they they blew up my cannon with a Henry rifle, for example. I said that's nuts. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and you know. It, it, yeah, it's an entertaining movie. It's, it's, it's poor history, of course, but it's... You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. It's an entertaining movie, and, and that's when it, it started to hit me, I guess, that, uh, you know, I mean, hey, it's just a movie after all. But I'm still very keen on uh, historical accuracy in anything that we do because a lot more people are starting to notice it. Right. You know, John Wayne could get away with carrying a 92 Winchester in, in the Civil War <laughs> because he was John Wayne. <laughs> and people want to see John Wayne. Right. Uh, you know that doesn't pass. It doesn't fly anymore. And I'm and I'm glad to see that that in in a variety of uh, historical movies, not just westerns or or even military movies per se, that uh, a lot more attention is paid to uh, historical accuracy. Uh, this at this convention I was at this last weekend, uh, we I was on a panel with uh, David Weber, who's a great guy, absolutely, mm-hmm. one, of my, one of my favorite authors. And uh, we, uh, we were discussing creating alternate worlds or alternate uh, uh, universes or, or, or things of that nature. And one of, we were, I, I was using black powder technology time period as, a, as an example of how in, in, in science fiction and fantasy in particular, it's, it's my opinion that in order to sustain the uh, suspension of, of disbelief, if you will, sometimes you need to have some, some, some reality mixed in. Right. That was one of the reasons I did I did so much research for the Distortment series to try and get the uh, the the environment the, the the feel of the ship so so right so the people would almost feel well well they would get to know it as a character in its own right. Uh, right. But the uh, oh I, I can't remember exactly what brought it up, but I, I was I was talking about. How, how disconcerting it can be when you're you're reading a book, you're enjoying it. Uh, some black powder society is is about to engage in a battle, and the cannons roar, and all of a sudden the field is choked with black smoke. Well, black powder smoke is the purest white you ever saw, <laughs> <laughs> and and something like that to, to somebody that knows, and there's a lot of people that know. Right is, right is jarring and it, and it and it undermines I think the author's uh, ability to suspend the reader's disbelief and uh, one uh, one member of the audience I, I, I believe he was an aspiring writer um, said well if it's fantasy what difference does it make and I said well if it's fantasy to me in my opinion it's almost more important that you you throw in the little factual tidbits in order to ground the the fantasy, if you know what I'm saying. Right. Um, and he said, well, 
I'm going to keep the black smoke because it keeps it it, it sets the mood that I'm trying to to, to create. <laughs> and I said, well, in, unless it's magic smoke, <laughs> if, it's, if, if it's created by gunpowder that's made out of potassium nitrate, sulfur, and, and and charcoal, you you really ought to turn it white. You know, this is my my considered opinion. <laughs> but right. that, that's just that's just an example. Stay tuned, and we'll have more of our interview right after this. The Kindle Chronicles is a Friday audio podcast all about the Amazon Kindle e-reader. I'm Len Edgerly, and each week I present Kindle news, tech tips, and interview a quote and listener comments. I've been a writer all my life, and I'm doing this podcast because the Kindle has simply renewed my love of reading. I hope you'll stop by for a listen. You can find me at thekindlechronicles.com or by searching for Kindle in the podcast area of the iTunes store. Sure, sure. Um, I wonder if we could could talk about what the process of publication was like for you. Um, uh, how did you end up selling the books to, to to Rock, and what was that process like? Well, I am I am. It was a, a very atypical experience, from what I understand. I'm as I said earlier, I'm new at this. Uh, I have done a lot of stuff, uh, experiences, and I was doing a lot of things at the time that I was writing the stories, at least the, the initial volume. And in fact, I was, I, I believe I was on the Alamo set when I decided I, I'm, I'm going to write a book, you know, something to do in my copious spare time, which really wasn't very much <laughs> because when I wasn't on, when I wasn't on set, I was in the in the weapons trailer fixing broken guns that were that were broken all during the day but occasionally i would have some time in the evenings and i would i would just kind of write some ideas down and so and uh that's how the story began to take shape and then like and like i said i think maybe it had something to do with with the alamo experience compared to the asiatic fleet experience that I mentioned earlier, right? That may have that may have influenced it, but the uh, and I and I kind of tinkered on it when I when I came back from the movie, I I went back to my, my normal life, but I continued to write and I and I, I enjoyed it, and uh, suddenly I realized it was pretty much finished, and uh, well, I'm going to get it published now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> In my in my naivete, I uh, yeah I, I knew that there was more involved in it than than just than that. I'd, I'd read I'd done a little bit of research on on the process of publication, and I knew it wasn't going to be a cinch. In fact, I, I honestly didn't really think that it would you know that it was something that I was going to be able to devote enough time to in order to get it done at that time. And uh, I sent out oh. I guess 25 or 30 queries and uh, started getting rejection slips. Mm-hmm. I said, okay. You know, I was, I was, I have to admit, I was a little frustrated from the perspective that I didn't, I say, no thanks, not for us, or something like that. But I never really knew why. 
but I didn't approach it from the perspective perspective of well, you know, they're a bunch of jerks. They don't know what they're you know they don't know what they're missing. I, I considered it like well, I'm screwing something up, so I've got to figure it out. I don't really have time for it now, but you know, I, I'll I'll research it further, and when I have more time, I'll I'll uh, I'll fix it and try again. I'm that that puts me in a little aside. Uh, a lot of writers believe that every word they write is is a a child of their body. I, I don't believe that at all. I, I strike entire sections out of out of my writing on a regular basis mm-hmm. just because it suddenly dawns on me that it's not appropriate, or, or I'll put it in later, or or I'll get rid of it entirely because the words really don't matter that much. It's the story mm-hmm. that you're trying to tell. If anything needs to be a child of your body, it needs to be the story. The words are a means to convey that story. And compared to the story, they, they are meaningless. And so, I, I, you know, criticism of, of a turn of phrase or, or whatever has never bothered me in the slightest. You know, I, may, I may look it over and say, well, I don't agree with you, but you know, if, if somebody does, you know, bring something to my attention, I look at it and say, "Hey, you're right. I have no problem with that." And maybe that that attitude was was one of the ones that that uh, helped me out when I, I got a to my, much to my surprise, I got a I got a response from a, from an agent who was very interested mm-hmm. in the in the series. And uh, his name is Russell Galen, and he's just—he's just absolutely the best there is, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm a little prejudiced, I have to say, but we've since become, you know, good friends, and and I think that's a—that's a great relationship to have with an agent. And I was—I I had screwed up a bunch of stuff, and and he took the time, which is extraordinary. To tell me, you know, what to fix. How, you know, just he didn't give me the words. He right. just said that this needs to be fixed, and and then let me see it again. And so I, I went through and and fixed it, I guess. And uh, I sent it back to him, and he said, "Yep, that's what I had in mind." And within a month, I had a contract. Wow! It was. It was it was almost a, uh, a Cinderella kind of kind of situation, I guess. Although I don't look very good in glass slippers. <laughs> um, as I mentioned before, uh, the the Destroyer Men um, uh, original books are, are a trilogy: um, Into the Storm, Crusade, and, and Maelstrom. I wonder, um, do you have other Destroyer Men novels planned, or are you currently writing any anything? Well, as as a matter of fact. Uh, it's interesting you should ask that. I have submitted <laughs> synopses for for more in the series, and right now I'm just uh, uh, waiting to hear back from the uh, from the publisher. And I, I get I, I've been overwhelmed with uh, uh, contacts, and it is, like I said earlier, it is so gratifying. I I, I find myself writing almost more in response to the contacts I get than I do. On manuscript, lately, <laughs> and I, I, I don't 
dislike it in the least. I mean, it's it's particularly when it when it comes from veterans or it comes from people whose whose lives the stories have actually touched. And the underlying theme, if there if there really truly is one in the series, is is honor. Uh, I would I would tend to rate them in kind of a PG thirteen range. And that's 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 deliberate. It's 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 fiction for grown ups. But I wouldn't be ashamed to let my daughter read it. Right, right. And there there is a message I think, or I or I've tried to instill a message in the story in the storyline of of honor, and I think that that's that's something that, that's missing a lot in literature today. Uh, I have nothing against the, uh, the, the the many fine novels that, that feature kind of the, the anti-hero. Uh, I, some of my very favorite stories are, are, are along those lines. But by the same token, I think that, that every now and then you need you need something that's that's uplifting. Even even I've got some really really bad characters in my stories, and I've got some really strange ones. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, some of them are are uh, are squirrels, literally, <laughs> as, as, as far as they uh, as, as far as their personality are concerned. And uh, none of them are based on any particular person. I want to get that. I want to make that clear. Right, right. Listening. <laughs> now, now, but I have told some of some of the people that I know said, "Now this character has a little bit of you in it," you know. <laughs> they're, they're, but they're, they're composites. They, they really are, but the the neatest thing I I, I get is uh, I've had emails. I, had, I got an email from a guy who'd been in the Navy for 20 years, and uh, if you're familiar with the Dennis Silva character, uh, he said he had a he had a PO just like that. And if he didn't know better, he'd think I'd, I'd based him on that character <laughs> and uh, or that character on him. And and that's kind of the, one of the neat things about it because everybody knows somebody like some of these these kind of eccentric characters exactly exactly um i wonder who who are some of the favorite writers that you read who do you read for fun oh man uh i I love like i said earlier i I love uh david weber uh david drake is great um shoot as far as science fiction is concerned, I'm a big fan of uh, Steve Sterling. Um, I like a lot of his historical uh, uh, Alan Eckert's stuff that he wrote, called, you know, The Frontiersman and mm-hmm. and uh, things of that nature is, is outstanding. It, it, I think that was kind of, in many ways, it it began. The, I don't know if if it, if it actually influenced, but it was it kind of began or or, or set the standard I think for for Jeff and, and Michael Shara's stuff, the Killer Angels and and uh, things like that. Although a lot of their dialogue is fictional, and in, a lot in many cases, uh, Alan Eckert's stuff is are, are things that the characters are are purported to have said right in real life. He still he still does it in a literary fashion that makes it read almost like a novel. Right. And so, so I like his stuff. I, I was a, a big fan of Bernard DeVoto in college, uh, which just drove my instructors crazy. They said, well, he'd been excoriated 
you know, when he was he was uh, riding across the wide Missouri and and uh, 1846 year decision and some of the others that he wrote about American expansion, course of empire, uh, because he wrote history in a literary fashion. Right. And of course, when I wrote my my master's thesis, you know, every every little little descriptive term that I put in there, I had to go back and studiously remove the times, you know, in, in the various incarnations of the thing, because, you know, you, you don't in, inject things like that into history, you know. Well, I, I disagree. I think that history is, it can, can you, you can bring it to, to life for, for, kids for students for for anybody grown-ups it doesn't matter if it has if, if it's alive if, if if you teach it or 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 related in such a way that that it doesn't seem like just dry facts on a piece of paper right and so i was i was much influenced by that and by those writers um have you read the the short I, novels I, by bernard cornwell oh yeah yeah I like his stuff very much. I, I really enjoyed his uh, his uh, uh, Civil War series that he began, and and I guess I guess he hasn't finished it, uh, but it was very good. I liked it. I liked it very much, and I've liked a lot of his other stories that he's written. Sure. The, uh, the Vagabond. Uh, right. Right. I, I I can't remember the names of the series, but I've read just about all of them. Sure. Sure. And you know, I'm I'm a big fan of of Homer. <laughs> you know the Iliad and 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 the Odyssey and oh shoot I I'm sitting in my office surrounded on three sides by books from floor to ceiling on on another side are are, are everything from you know match locks to to M1 Grands and and quite a few quite a few shooting trophies I must say. But I get a lot of inspiration and, and ship models, a lot right. of ship models in here. Kind of an eccentric library in a sense. But uh, I read a lot of history. I read a lot of uh, historical fiction. I, I love Patrick O'Brien and uh, uh, Alexander Kent. Right, and, right. And all, all of the Hornblower series. I mean, sure. it's... I, I guess... If somebody asked me what influenced me the most, I would give them this long list of authors and say, just mix them up. <laughs> right, right. Well, um, as we come to the end, I wonder if you um, have any advice or words of wisdom for aspiring writers who may be listening to this podcast. Well, as I said earlier, my my experience was atypical. And now that and the more I learn about it, the more I realize just how atypical it was. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe I was blessed. I don't know. Uh, maybe if there was some reason. Maybe it's, it's it's the honor and the stories that needs to get out there. I'm not going to try to get metaphysical about it. But the, the the best thing I can say is to polish and persevere because. The, the better it is, and, and do not fall in love with your every written word. If Read it aloud. 
read it aloud a lot. Uh, read it to somebody else. Let somebody else read it aloud to you and say, well, that sounds stupid or not. You know, that's that's the easiest way you can, because an author can get way too close to the work and and can miss a lot of what other people are, are, are getting from it or, or not getting from it. And, you know, the the... the the, the clumsy turn of phrase or the or the or the or things of that nature that you just you just don't pick up on a lot of other people will well, well great thank, thanks a lot for for taking the time to to talk to me and and again we've been speaking with Taylor Anderson the author of the recently published destroy your men trilogy and they're uh, published by rock um, the first book into the storm is out in paperback and the second and third books of the trilogy are in hardback and Will probably be in paperback soon. Thanks for listening to the Reading and Writing Podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to our feed in iTunes, leave a review for this podcast on iTunes. And now you can even leave a voicemail. If you like what you heard and you'd like to give us a comment, feel free to leave a voicemail at 206-888-2731. Again, that's 206-888-2731. And we'll feature your comment in a future podcast. Thanks, and we will be back soon with another interview with a writer that you enjoy reading. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.